The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. The mistakes that I've made in relation to work-life balance, the, the foolish things I did, like 10 days after having a caesarean with my daughter. I dragged myself into the Court of Appeal to get a judgment in a discrimination case. Really, such a stupid thing to do, you know. My stitches came out. I mean, oh, they didn't no. have to. But, you know, it was stupid. But I was so determined that yeah. I, having done that case, I was going to jolly well get the <laughs> get the credit. Hello, I'm Kevin Poulter, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Cherie Blair or Booth, uh, depending on the day. We talk about Cherie's incredible career at the bar and what's driven her now to work in human rights uh, internationally with Omnia Strategy. What was especially surprising was that Sheree joined us in her Pilates gear straight from the studio. We talk about Sheree's diverse legal background, uh, what it's like bringing up a family in Downing Street whilst working at the same time as a high profile and really entrepreneurial barrister and lawyer. It's clear that the law is really a labour of love for Sheree and she is still happy, committed and incredibly busy with the work that she's still doing today. The Hearing Cherie, thank you so much for meeting us, joining us. Uh, we're here in your lovely office, and I'm not sure how to describe this area. Uh, Marylebone, I would say. Leafy. So it's certainly very sunny today. Uh, uh, very it's not pleasant. always sunny, London. Yeah. I'm sure. Now, my first question really is: Is it a Blair or a Booth day? Um, because you use, you seem to use them relatively interchangeably. Um, does do, do you have a particular persona or, or something that goes with each one? And that's a very interesting question. There are times I wonder, you know, who these two people are. But I think essentially, certainly for a long time, my my legal career as a barrister is Sheree Booth QC. That's what my certificates all say. And that's uh, what um, my QC uh, is in the name of. Mm. Uh, And for a long time, I was just Sheree Booth. But obviously, when my children came along and they're all Blairs, the Mrs. Blair started to assert herself. Okay. Um, and then, funny enough, when my husband became Prime Minister, there was a whole um, issue in Downing Street because they were very uncomfortable with me being called oh, really? Cherie Booth. And I remember there was a... Uh, fairly early on, there was a European Council meeting um, that like, it was like 98 or something that we were hosting, and I had to host the Spouses Programme, and I wanted to say okay. Cherie Booth QC. Yeah. And I was informed by the protocol people that I couldn't possibly do that because no one would know who I was if I said Cherie Booth QC. It had to be Mrs. Cherie Blair. So I said, well, are you sure? And then when the the ladies turned up, of course, in the European Council, well, for a start, the Spanish Prime Minister's wife, the Spanish women do not change their name. So she wasn't called uh, Anna Aznar. And uh, the Swedish... The Dane, none of these women were actually taking their husband's name, so mm. I felt slightly aggrieved at, at that. Uh, um, but uh, generally speaking, certainly in Downing Street, all my legal work was very much not Blair. Mm. But then after we left Downing Street and I set up my foundation, given that we wanted to um, raise money, and, mm. and so it was actually, it seemed to me more sensible to call yeah. it the Sheree Blair Foundation yeah. for Women, so that's uh, what we did. And similarly now with Omnia and uh, Omnia Strategy, my my law firm, because we practice internationally, Mm. uh, including doing a a lot of work, which is what we call Law Plus. So it's where law intersects with policy, Mm. with diplomacy, uh, with public relations, 
in an international context, again, it seems more easy to use the Blair name mm. than the Booth. So, uh, but, but my grandchildren just call me Grandma. Oh, well, that's good enough. I, I won't do that. Uh, <laughs> but, but that's great to hear. Um, now, uh, we, what we usually do is, uh, as regular listeners will know, we, we kind of talk through your sort of route to the profession. I want to do it in a slightly different way because you've already mentioned Omnia. I presume it's not named after what I think is a post punk Celtic rock band oh who shares God. the same name. Really? Uh, I, did, I have done my research. Uh, I've it's not named after that. Tell us a little bit more about Omnia and we'll work backwards for a change. Well, yes. Well, the, the how did the name come about? It, the, it comes about from, from the fact that uh, if you'd asked me 20 years ago as my husband became Prime Minister and I would, I'd been a QC for four or five years, you know, my ambition was to become a High Court judge. Obviously, when you're married to the prime minister, that is a—it's—it's it's not possible. And in fact, not just that. And my my brother-in-law, Tony's older brother, who um, did become a high court judge, mm. basically could not be a high court judge as long as his brother was prime That's minister, right. which was probably a, a lot more unfair on him mm. than than it was on me. Is that simply for fear of influence or just, conflict? Or yeah, I mean, just, it just—it just uh, is better to keep these things separately. Mm. Um, so, but by the t- at, at the end of ten years in in, in Downing Street, um, I had become much more aware and had the opportunities to learn so much more about what was going on internationally. Mm. And though I'd done some international law work, mainly through Europe, whether it's Strasbourg or Luxembourg, um, in those ten years, the international law scene became much more. Um, something that I became interested Mm. in, aware of. Uh, And so when we left Downing Street, my ambition, if you like, to become a High Court judge had been diluted by my desire Mm. to be able to combine that experience in the law uh, and in human rights with my experience of international law and particularly that boundary between international law and international politics. Yeah, and, and you've already mentioned sort of the, if, well, if it's like the, sort of the PR elements of it as well, as sort of the the, strat- the strategic, uh, taking the name, um, uh, elements. And how how do you uh, sort of operate within the law and those other, the, the plus element of it? How, what is that intersection like? So I think a lot of people probably struggle with walking that line. Well, I think that um, it's very, Interesting, And, of course, remember, my background also was as a public lawyer. So, mm. though it had been domestically, I, mm. I'd done a lot of cases which, if you like, were p- politically controversial. When yeah. I was the wife of the Prime Minister, I'd learnt myself <laughs> how very easy it is to uh, fall into uh, mm. situations where the, 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 the press can uh, make mischief. Absolutely. Uh, so, one... One way and the other, I certainly had scars on my back uh, from that. But I've also, going right back to when I was trained as a lawyer at the LSE, where we were very much told that law was part of the social science mission of LSE. Mm. You know, I don't believe that the law is something that's so discreet uh, and separate from everything else, whether it's business or politics. Mm. Uh you don't actually have a compartment where the law stands separately from the context in which the law is being practiced mm. and litigation, because in, at heart I'm a litigator, litigation is uh, taking place. Mm. And yet, particularly with increasing specialism through my 
40 odd years mm -hmm. in the law. We rather lost that wider context. I think sometimes you could be too specialized yeah. and become unaware, not just about what other legal disciplines can teach you, mm -hmm. but also actually about the fact that this, you know, we lawyers don't live in some kind of rarefied tower where what we say and what we do uh, uh, has no effect on a bigger picture. No, that's absolutely right. And you're right. As we look back at sort of my own training and jurisprudence and, the, as I say, the social element of the mm. law and responsibilities that we all have. And, and, and absolutely, as solicitors, as, as barristers, we're still held, held more accountable in society than other people on the street. I always remember, way back, just after I came out of Downing Street, I went and did a, a speech at the World Bank, um, partly in relation to ICSID, you know, the International Centre for the Settlement of Investment Disputes. And I was talking about uh, the impact of human rights on, on, on these disputes. And as mm. before I just came in, I met a, a commercial lawyer who I've known for years, who has practised in arbitration. Mm. And he said to me, oh, sure, it's so good to, to see you. It's always nice to hear from other disciplines. <laughs> and so when I opened my speech, I said, I, I accounted this story and said, I'm here to tell you that human rights is about what you're doing mm. in this Centre for Settlement of International Disputes. And every lawyer has to, has to remember that we're here to serve the, the rule of law. Mm. And, um, you know, there isn't a, some sort of separate box which is about human rights. And for me, it has been interesting in the work I've done since then and the work we do in Omnia is how much that intersection mm. between commercial law, business and commerce, and politics, and even, in fact, the criminal law, um, you know, there are not solid lines. Uh, I've just come back from Kuwait, where we're, we're representing a woman who's in prison at the moment, very successful businesswoman in the Middle East, probably, you know, very famous, not from the Middle East, uh, from Russia originally. Mm. And she is in prison essentially because of commercial rivalries with a, a another well-connected business going after similar big international contracts mm. and um, a, a rather successful campaign by those commercial rivals to turn what was a commercial dispute into allegations of corruption and, and theft leading to my client being in prison mm. even though when you look closely at the evidence, uh, there's no proof of, it, of any of that. But nevertheless, uh, we, we see it all over the, the world now, a worrying tendency for governments to often criminalize what are otherwise commercial disputes. Yeah, and yeah. when you're practicing international business and you're making investment in countries, and then suddenly you, mm. you find that uh, your employees, your, your directors find not just that there's a dispute that can lead to compensation, damages, but actually find that their liberty can be yeah, involved. Yeah. Um, or uh, other cases we've had where countries have used red notices in Interpol mm. to restrict um, uh, the movements of their, their business rivals and mm. then get them, get them arrested. So there is a tendency to, to mix these things up. And yeah. solutions to those problems aren't simply to prove the underlying legal mm. case. It's also you have to have an awareness of how you manage both the way you present those cases in the court of public opinion 
and also how you manage the the uh, dipl- diplomatic and political lead- levers that you may mm. have to pull to achieve the the result. And it's not just about commercial uh, uh, restrictions either. We obviously see political restrictions and, and human rights being uh, used or, or certain rights being taken away from people to restrict criticism of governments, for example. Absolutely. Um, now, what are, no, I, I, but you see, traditionally, uh, when people talk about human rights, mm, those are the that's what those are about. definitely what they think about, and they are so important and remain important. Mm. And in this case, in Kuwait. There's also an issue about the treatment of her lawyers, mm. her domestic yeah, lawyers. Yeah. And you know, I think very passionately, I was just talking to Elena Kennedy about this with her new role as head of the IBA's mm. human rights body. You know, as lawyers, you know, we need to be firm about supporting other lawyers around the world who are yeah. just doing their job. Yeah. And, you know, making sure that for just doing your job and doing doing it fearlessly mm. and in the best interests of your clients, you don't yourselves become yeah. vulnerable to and abuse. And sometimes that's closer to home as well. Uh, so, so why want because uh, Omni is not a charity. Um, oh, no. So how do you, how do the clients come to you? They come through word of mouth, really. really? And for a long time, I think we had a very sort of minimal um, website. And we don't put a huge amount even mm. now on our website because... Uh, we like we like to say we try to do the elegant solution of of these tricky disputes, and you know the elegant solution isn't about singing about how clever we are mm. at Omnia. Mm. It's about getting the job done for your clients, and for many of them, um, discretion is much the better part of valor. Mm. Um, uh, uh, elegant solution is a, an interesting way of putting things, but what does that actually mean? Because uh, well, it actually uh, means that you know you basically. I sometimes say it's the iron fist in the velvet glove. Okay. You may well use the your ability to, yeah. to broker a settlement partly rests on the knowledge that your opponent has that you are capable mm. of taking this to a in, in a legal forum mm. and uh, seeing it through to the end. But also partly it's about our willingness to see, well, can we actually find a solution mm. which avoids that? Mm. It's interesting you say, because I, I'm an employment lawyer and, and, and I think that employment lawyers typically, not exclusively, but typically, try to, between themselves, find that elegant solution. Yeah. They know what the compromise, the right compromise is. They know roughly within that huge amount of grey where the right position yeah, exactly. is to take. And I, I think that's interesting you say that. And that's not well, typically... Maybe that, but maybe that's because I was also yeah. in, 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 an employment lawyer as well. And that, uh, you know, in employment law, that's particularly the case. You mm. know, I, so many in my career, I've done so many cases for, for particularly for women who've been mm. discriminated against. And, you know, I, you always have to be aware that for many women to bring one of these cases is essentially kissing goodbye, certainly the career in that place, yeah. if not maybe yeah. even more widely. And so, you know, you have to um, be careful not to, uh, in, in encouraging your client to fight the good fight for mm. their rights, actually end up with a Pyrrhic victory where, yes, they get some kind of compensation but actually what's happened to the the career that they wanted yeah and um you know sometimes particularly in many employment cases people just want things to get better at work so they can get on with their job Mm. and so you have continuing relationship there so if you have a continuing relationship all guns blazing isn't always 
the right way to do it. Absolutely. Similarly with international trade, if you're a mining company, you're going to invest hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe even more than that, mm. to have a long-term relationship with a country. Sometimes, you're, if, you, if, you, if you really want to do the job, mm. you are better off compromising than fighting the fight, yes, getting money in the end, and there's always an issue about enforcing yeah. that. But I think it goes wider than that as well, because in Omnia we do our dispute resolution, and we also do what we call our dispute avoidance, right. which very much goes around business and human rights. Mm which is an area, again, that I feel very, uh, I, I, I like, uh, I, I've explained already, I think I've been very lucky to be in a number of trends where once upon a time lawyers didn't do these cases. In, you know, when I mm. studied what was called labor law in the LSE yeah. in 1975, I mean, and then... It didn't really it called, exist. It didn't, <laughs> it, there was, there was, the legislation had come through that, first of all, in place of strife under the Wilson government and then the Tory party mm. introducing under Edward Heath these new reforms. Mm. And, you know, this was a very new new area. Now, I mean, you know, employment law is a very distinct yeah. specialism. Subsequently, uh, moving into my public law practice, you know, I was one mm. of the first people to... I was one of the first editors of the uh, Butterworth Education Law Encyclopedia. There wasn't really mm. education law once, yeah. once upon a once upon Not that long ago, no. I realise uh, <laughs> No, or the, or the book I wrote, The Negligence Liability of Public Authorities. I mean, that didn't exist when I was doing my talk back in the, in the 70s. Yeah. Either, well, a little bit. There was uh, the Home Office in Dorset Yacht. Uh, what a geek I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed already. Uh. But, but nevertheless, um, I think, so the way, I love the way the law develops and the way that you can use it. But I think it goes back to that training I had at the LSE, which was to see law more than just a, a sort of rote learning of what the mm. what the law is, and mm. a, a, but as a as a way of managing the peaceful resolution of disputes, and you know, uh, also being a trade mediator, mm. often it's it's disputes where the parties feel a sense of ownership in the solution rather than a dispute. In, a solution is imposed on them mm. that, that are, are, the, are the more successful. Mm. So with governments, for example, governments come in, and some of the work we do, we often work with governments who've come in promising and reforms, and sometimes in some of these countries, reforms are needed because there has been yeah. a corrupt yeah. government. Yeah. Um, but a lot of... You, you, we try and help them manage that process because mm. if you just cancel all the all all the contracts you can end up as a government bogged down in litigation and or bankrupt yes yeah, <laughs> and, and and finding yourself and you know you need to ask yourselves actually is this a contract we need mm. that we actually is this something our country actually needs if it isn't fine get rid of it mm. but if it is are these the right people to do it yeah. and maybe they are maybe they aren't but if they are Mm. You know, well, are the terms right? And if they're not, maybe the answer is to try and negotiate mm. and get 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 things sorted. And if you can't do that, then you have to think about, well, how can we bring this to an end? So it, it's a lot more complicated, um, I think, and more interesting in, in many ways. Well, it's, it's one of those phrases that we talk about a lot is being a trusted advisor. And I think that's... I think what you're saying is that's what you are, yes, um, we, but not to individuals, not to businesses, well, those as well, but also to governments yes. and, uh, and and probably organisations that work across uh, international borders. But how much of this, I guess, is is you from the person that you were 
1974 or uh, five, yeah. um, or right the way through to now? Because you've obviously picked up and uh, had these experiences as an employment lawyer, as a barrister, uh, public law, as, as married to the prime minister, um, human rights. Uh, we'll talk about your foundation as well, but each of these parts sort of has obviously made who you are now. How much of this now is you in terms of your work? I think it's, it, but Omnia is actually the, the great thing. And to some extent I've been, in, in my life as well, I've always been a bit of a serial entrepreneur. Mm, so sounds you, as, as you've read from my, my, my story, not, not only did I, um, I obviously started off as, as a barrister, but you know, in, in my barrister career, I both set up we split off from my first chambers and we set up a new chambers. Mm. I then moved chambers. I then set up Matrix. Yeah. Um, and then after after that, I set up the foundation. Um, so I, I, I like the idea of, of innovating mm. and, and trying to find um, new ways of, of, of doing things. So I don't know where that's come from, but somehow mm. or other that has been the, the, the way I've behaved. But Omnia is so much more than just me. Mm. Um, and, for me, as a, as a barrister, that's something else that's been both slightly scary and really rewarding. Slightly scary in that, for so long as my in my legal career, because I'm a self-employed barrister, mm. you know, if I chose to do things, if I chose to go off and 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 with my husband on a on a, on a visit to a country and then didn't work, well, that's fine because only you can do that. I I, I can do that, um, and. Um, now, of course, we have people whose salaries have to be paid and who we have to support. Though we are a very lean team and our model very much uses the bar um, to help supplement the, the advice we get so mm. that we don't have to carry... You know, these are not big offices. They're, they're, as you say, nice offices, but they're not huge big offices. And because of technology, you know, we can bring in people and put mm. together teams. I mean, we have a very cooperative approach to the way we work, mm. not just with the bar, but with other firms of solicitors. Uh, the Kuwait case I was talking about, mm. we're working with an American mm. law firm okay. whose experience is more about, they're very experienced as, as political lobbyists in Washington. Right. Um, and we were bringing the international law element to that, working together, it made a very nice synergy mm. between the two of us. and. Uh, the work we do, for example, uh, with governments, like we're working in with some governments in the Balkans, we very much work with their in-house uh, legal team. Mm. Um, this is this this flexibility that uh, you know we are a neat we are a niche firm. We don't claim to do everything, but what we do claim is that what we do do we do very well. Mm. And how important is it that those people that are coming to you are? flexible, open to change, open to new ideas, open to a different way of thinking perhaps, particularly when you're talking about regime changes, which which I'm sure you've seen as well. Um, it's it, a tradition and uh, sort of history that is so caught up in culture. Are they receptive or is it something which is a, a hard job for you? Are you in some ways being the, the advocate and, and, and fighting against them? No, I think that uh, in relation to the people who worked for us, oh, uh, our employees, of course, no. I think if you, uh, the people who come to Omnia are interested in being more entrepreneurial. Mm. Uh, they're interested in thinking a bit outside the box in relation to, to law. Um, you know, they are, they are 
much more independent workers and in, mm. uh, in one in, in one sense but they we also uh, you know we're a woman-led firm which is important to us it's important that we practice what we preach about work-life mm. balance mm. it's important um, that we practice what we preach about being open to our employees about mm. what we're doing and, and and enabling them to share in our success I mean you know it's 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 a that in, in a sense is a great model and that it's the it's the team and my other partners and the senior lawyers and the junior lawyers all, all mm. of us uh, contributing together so that it's you know, this is not just the Cherie show by mm. any means no but being women led women led particularly um, within potentially with some clients uh, I'm thinking about the, sort of the state clients the government clients that in itself could be an issue uh, particularly well, when you're talking about human rights issues well I, I suppose it depends on the, um, it hasn't been an issue with many of the states that we we work with I think there's also a there's an advantage in being, that sounds terribly <laughs> pretentious, an international figure and of my age. You know, I mean, uh, the Cherie that started off in, 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 in the law in uh, 1976 <laughs> and was told, you know, well, obviously, Cherie, there's, there's, a, there's one post and there's a boy and a girl wanting this post. Obviously, it's got to go to the boy and accepting that that was obviously right because at the time frankly it was obviously right now ironically of course it's me who's still the lawyer and he who is oh really his, uh, no, 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 well no, he, no, he went off and became prime minister oh you know? okay, this, okay in that case <laughs> yes but, pros, no, pros but, the, but the but the assumption in that time which was as a as a as a, as a woman lawyer well mm. you know i you know would i stay the course um you know those assumptions even now that we make about mm. the role of women less so but there's still, that's yeah, why probably. we have the glass ceilings why we don't have uh, uh, a, a level playing field when we're yeah. talking about partnerships for for women solicitors when we're talking about women uh, being recruited to the bench though to, to be fair in some senses you can do more on that because it is in the hands of the government and yeah. when a government has a as a policy to ensure and try and promote mm. more diversity in the judicial system they can do so harder in in commercial organizations which what well, many of the big law firms are mm. um where they that 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 can well it's obviously difficult because we can see can't we from the figures the figures that have been reported in relation to uh Rates of pay and the the, the, the well, equal yeah, pay well, the audits, pay gap the particularly gen- is showing us a lot now, and, and but also also in relation to the percentage of of partners. Of partners. Well, again, more more firms are coming out actually and, and standing up and, and accounting for their partnership levels as well, which is which is good to hear. Um, but it's not just about being a woman; it's also about having a family, which is something that you've done uh, through well. Certainly, for most of your professional life, uh, you've been not only uh, a, a jobbing barrister, you've been a, a working mum, and you've also had some other duties as extra well. Extra duties, side. yes, some extracurricular how, duties. Yes. How on earth uh, have you managed your time, and why are, why are you still working? Just take a rest. <laughs> no, I don't want to take a rest. I mean, to some extent, I've probably perhaps always been driven. My husband's still working too, and, and you know, I take a this is what I do. I enjoy it. I, I get so much out of it. I get so much out of being with the younger lawyers that are, that are here. Mm. And I get so much out of problem solving. Mm. Um, it, it, the, the, it, you know, it's a rare privilege to be able to feel that you are helping people uh, do things better, make mm. things better, achieve their aims. Um, listen, if I knew God, the, the mistakes 
that I've made in relation to work-life balance, the, the foolish things I did, like 10 days after having a cesarean with my daughter, who literally... I just saw now we were we were supposed to see each other, but she was caught up in court because she's oh, a barrister well, herself. I'll, I'll come to that. <laughs> but she, um, you know, ten days after she was born and having a cesarean, I dragged myself into the court of appeal to get a judgment in a discrimination case, because in those days the law report in the Times the next day would have the name of whoever it was who took judgment. In those days they read the judgment, and so you know, I mean, really, such a stupid thing to do, you know. My stitches came out. I mean, oh, they didn't no. have to. But, you know, it was stupid. But I was so determined that yeah. I, having done that case, I was going to jolly well get the get the credit. Well, How stupid! Yeah, <laughs> which, 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 looking back, yes, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's in hindsight, it's a great thing. Yeah. But, and with my, but, with you know, with, when I first went on maternity, well, I didn't really. I mean, I did go on maternity. I had four months when my when my eldest child was born. Mm. But at that time. It didn't even occur to... I didn't even ask, because I didn't think I would get it anyway, mm. to have any concession. Mm. So I continued to pay my rent and my chamber's expenses, mm. even though I actually wasn't working. And through both my two first two children, and it was only when my daughter was born, or as she was born, just before she was born, by this time there was another woman in chambers, and she had fallen pregnant for the for the first time mm. and she unlike me because I've been lucky in my pregnancies had terrible morning sickness oh. so I'm sure your <laughs> listeners are delighted to hear this but as a result of it she really could not you know go to court it's a very and real so it's a very she, real issue she she said you know I, I need some kind of concession I can't keep paying all these expenses yeah and of course they were you know everyone said oh, of course and so that happened so mm. now that's what happened I was all in favor and then in the end I said oh, actually guys you know I'm pregnant too <laughs> <laughs> maybe I can have this concession as well I mean I know I'm not ill but <laughs> and so that's that's how it happened now of course nowadays you know that's it's, it's, it's completely different now mm. in fact there's parental there's parental leave for male and females mm. I'm a huge um, supporter of the idea that we have to stop seeing this as a women's issue. Yeah. That it's about how we are bringing up the next generation. This is as much a man's issue as it is a woman's issue. Mm. And I see that now with my two older sons are married. Uh, I've got two little grandchildren. I mm. need two and one. Um, but, you know, my daughter-in-law is a solicitor. Um, you know, and, the, and my son does play. I mean, his father was reasonably hands-on yep. but honestly my son does put his father in the shade in the really? in the burden that he um takes as my husband actually put his own father in the shade his own mm. father never even changed a nappy mm. you know mm. yeah no th things are certainly changing <laughs> yeah. and 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 you're right and, and things like shared parental leave can help i don't think it quite goes as far as it should do in terms of the law yet no um, but you're right you're an employment lawyer so you well, there's, there's, you there's would, not you a great deal of encouragement uh, no. and i think or certainly incentive for for uh, organizations to support it and i think that that's something that may well that's maybe your next challenge uh, we can talk about um so so just stepping back slightly uh, and i want to talk about uh, your when you first started and you've mentioned briefly about the decision between uh, for chambers between a boy and a girl uh, and taking them on but actually you're one of the first women to be in chambers um certainly the chambers that you ran but how did that come about because i understand that 
there was a, there was the involvement of a former Lord Chancellor and oh, uh, sort of renowned interior designer. Um, uh, tell us about that one. Renowned interior designer. I was got very expensive tastes in wallpaper. Oh no, I see. I thought you meant there was a second person named Derry and his Pugin wallpaper. Yes, of course. No, the um, but listen. By the time. I was called to the bar in 1976. There were some women in the bar. When I, when mm. I think back, and one of my my inspirations for going to the bar was Rose Halbron QC. And and I, I wrote in the introduction, I wrote to Hilary, her daughters, who's also a QC, of course, book about her mother. The situation she faced mm. and and the, 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 the petty jealousies because, because she was so rare, mm. um, you know, she got a lot of publicity and she was, you know, the, Bar Council and others, because in those days you couldn't advertise. You know, people complained, you know, she's in the papers again, you know, and this is terrible, she's encouraging it, you know. And it was simply because she was this attractive mm. mother mm. in a profession that was absolutely male. Well, beyond dominated. Yes. Um, and so, you know, her breakthrough, the breakthroughs of some of, some of the other early... Uh, pioneers, whether it's Lizzie Lane or Elizabeth mm. Butler Sloss, mm. or of course um, Brenda Hale. Yep. Uh, I mean, all of those um, pioneers before us. You know, we 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 stand on their shoulders. Mm. It's still the case that when I came to the bar, it was around ten percent women. Mm. And as as I wrote in my book, you know, for the my first year's pupillage, there were women in my pupillage chambers, but I never saw them. In court, mm. so literally for the first year, you know, I had no idea what a female voice would sound like mm. in court, um, and so you know, just how do you find your voice as a female advocate? And do you think that's helped you not not having people to learn from, not learning uh, from somebody else? Is that giving you your own voice, uh, your well, own no, way of I doing I think that things? everybody needs to find their their own style, and uh, I often say about the time that I saw Derry Irvin and Tom Bingham go head to head in court. <laughs> Uh, when I was Derry's pupil, and it was actually, you being an employment lawyer would appreciate this, it was in the Employment Appeal Tribunal. Mm. It was about the certification officer and trade union certification. Um, and it was the first and only case that the certification officer came to give evidence and was cross-examined. Wow. Um, and uh, I saw Derry, who gave a very robust uh, performance, which I describe as you know being cross-examined by Derry, and that case was like the being cross-examined by a rhinoceros. <laughs> and then I saw Tom Bingham. And Tom Bingham, completely different mm. uh, physically. Uh, and he his was more of a, like a snake. And I realised that there's no way that I could be a rhinoceros, but maybe I could be a snake. Mm. And, <laughs> and who won in that case? Was it the rhinoceros or the snake? <laughs> But what happened in the end is it kind of got settled. <laughs> That's about and right. the EAT ruled we'll never again have a certification officer giving evidence and being cross-examined. That's not going to happen again. No, it's only going to be arguments of law. Uh, so so you've, you've talked to us as well about uh, your family. And uh, you've now uh, got a daughter who's at the bar. I've got a son who's a solicitor. A son who's a solicitor. So you've certainly not discouraged uh, that line. No, I 
keep saying to my husband at the moment it's uh, it's too too nil to me we've got two lawyers and uh, and I'm no sure politicians as yet I think, I think we'll still allow him to be a lawyer as well so he's probably on an even footing but um, and to be fair of course Catherine my daughter when she was called to the bar at Lincoln's Inn she was the third generation because Tony's father was mm. called to the bar at Lincoln's Inn his brother himself and myself and his sister actually were all called to the bar at Lincoln's Inn and then my daughter is called to the bar at Lincoln's Inn. <laughs> but your own route uh, was, again, slightly different. That you that wasn't a natural progression for no. you. Um, how, 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 where, where did your motivation come from? Well, I go back to um, the example of Rose Halbrom. Mm. My mother and my grandmother made a lot of sacrifices for me. My mother was a single mum living with her own mother-in-law. Both of my mother and my grandmother had left school at 14 for different reasons, but nevertheless, and they were very passionate about education and Mm. they made huge sacrifices to make sure my sister and I, we got to grammar school, but, and though we, we were scholarship girls, you know, that just the expense of the school uniform was uh, pretty crippling for for, for my mum. This is in Liverpool. This is in Liverpool. Um, I can tell from the accent. Yeah, yeah. No, as my kids say, I still say bath and laugh. Oh, quite, quite right. That's <laughs> <laughs> a surprise. Uh, and my accent when I first came to the bar was a lot more than it is now, but that's uh, so many, uh, 40 years in London, that's what it does yeah. to you. Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah. But um, going, going back to that, so I was very conscious when I came, you know, they wanted me to go to university, but I was very conscious that they themselves and my father and you know all the family members had all basically worked from 16 mm. and brought money and I was still not bringing in much money apart from the holiday jobs and, yeah. and, the, and that sort of thing. So I wanted to do something that was practical, if you like, much as I loved history. Mm. I thought if I do history, I'll be a teacher and I didn't want to be a teacher. I didn't feel that was, um, I had the temperament for that. Um, though actually I do enjoy teaching <laughs> when, uh, law and that but um, and my boyfriend at the time his mother said to me Cherie you're a great arguer <laughs> you do a lot of debating have you ever thought about being a, a lawyer and to be honest I hadn't particularly but my grandmother was always a great fan of Rose Halbron because she was a very famous daughter of Liverpool right? Um, so famous that there was at that time when I was a young girl that Margaret Lockwood, who is a very glamorous actress, she'd right. been a big actress in the forties and fifties. It was okay. towards the end of her career. Starred in a in an ITV program called Justice, where she was loose, she was loosely based on a female lawyer, which was obviously Rose Halbrook. Yeah. Um, and I thought, how incredibly glamorous is that? And so I thought, well, why not? But uh, and then I went to the LSE and discovered how much I. Uh, I seem to be good at it. And was it the glamour or the uh, the arguing that, that no, no, definitely the Anyone who's been a, 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 an advocate knows it's not really glamorous at all. Um, yeah, uh, I've seen I've seen some of the changing rooms, uh, roving rooms, uh, not not too glamorous. Um, no, not at all. And I, I, I was uh, funny enough. I was telling somebody that's why when I was in court in Kuwait, and I was following. We went round to see the, the judge and I was following round and we went and there was a place where I thought my god they're taking us to the toilets but no it wasn't that it reminded me of one of the first times I went to the law courts with Derry as his pupil and he said keep close to me and follow so I diligently kept close to him followed. we walked in to what turned out to be the old roving room mm. in the royal courts of justice 
male robing room, yeah. of course, because the yeah. girls, ro- the ladies' robing room was a cupboard upstairs, which is now the disabled toilet. <laughs> um, and realizing they turned around, I said, "What are you doing in here?" Because there was a, there was a. He, we said there was a urinal in the middle, which I, had, <laughs> I didn't get that far in to see. So whether there was or wasn't, I can't say. But you know, uh, you know, it was just kind of like, yeah horrendous how could you possibly come into this you know definitely not a place where you felt that women were supposed to be all the time as a pupil I went to on circuit somewhere and walked into the robing room full of men and they all just fell silent because Mm. you know they were sort of like well where's she going to go and she's not going to take off any clothes in here is she <laughs> not that you need to, to put your robes on but you know there was kind of like oh my god this is well look I see I see this as the employment tribunal waiting rooms so <laughs> you, you don't need to sell it to me no um, uh, and but, this is one of the problems of course the lack of uh, investment mm. the, 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 over the years now in our courts so mm. that the, the the conditions for advocates today you know the conditions mm. for the members of the public yeah. today True. Um, yeah, are, are poor. Yeah, and, and people people don't see the value. And I think people the the, the uh, admiration and respect for the law I think is diminished as a result of that in some ways. Um, I, I don't go to the criminal courts very often, but I, I don't know. I suspect they're the same, if not worse. Oh, I'm, and absolutely. Having sat for a long time as a recorder, um, you know the number of times when the court didn't have enough photocopies so mm. that something needed to be copied mm. and you know the trial would have to be stopped while yeah. people scrambled around to try and find somewhere they could okay. photocopy. Here's, here's another job to add to the list um, uh, when you have the time. Uh, so so you've, you've, you've talked about so many uh, times, stories that you've come through, um, times when you've been encouraged, times when you've perhaps been surprised and, and I'm not going to talk about the imposter syndrome too much, but have there been times when you felt particularly empowered um, doing the job that you do, whether it's in court, whether it's in private, whether it's in gov- with governments? I think that certainly as a, as a young woman lawyer, um, you know, what is sometimes was a, was a great thing was that when you would get, go in and clients would be a bit dubious about whether they want a woman lawyer, but you actually... Often, if you actually did a good job for them, mm. because there weren't so many of you, mm. you stood out more, and so you got more recognition, if mm. you like. And mm. the, they was they were so astonished you did so well. They thought you were some kind of miracle worker. So sometimes it could it could work to to, to mm. your advantage as well, because you know you were more noticeable, yeah. perhaps than 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 others were, um, and of course. You know, to be in 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 cases as 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 time has gone by, when where once upon a time there would be no women, to be in a courtroom where actually perhaps there are more women than men. Yeah, yeah. We've recently had the uh, first majority of women in the Supreme Court, of course, which is which is incredible uh, and, a, and a huge step forward. Um, and I always remember I did a case in the Court of Appeal uh, when um, there was actually two women judges and mm. and 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 a. And a uh, a male and I can't, I can't remember whether the male was the presider or not now mm. but my opponent stood up and came he kept saying my lord and my ladies and, and eventually the male lord stood up and said I said for these purposes I think you can just call us all my lady <laughs> <laughs> which was you know uh, you know amazing uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Well, these are the progressives that we need. Um, so. But I think that you know, if you ask me now, what the the it's not so much women in the law that concerns me, though it's still an, an issue, of course. But it is this question about diversity in mm. the profession mm. and something that, again, a girl. I was lucky. I had a full grant to go to university. I still. I actually was, uh, Lancashire County Council paid for me to do my bar finals. Wow. Three years later when my sister went to do her solicitor's exams, that had stopped yeah. by that time yeah. because I was practicing and uh, I was able to support so, her. Yeah. But, um, you know, there was no way that my mother could have supported me. Yeah. I was lucky enough because I, I, that I had to get, to get a scholarship from... Lincoln's in, and I was able to teach part time mm. law at the what was then the Polytechnic of Central, and there's now uh, University of Westminster. Mm. But so many of those avenues aren't available to people, not just from backgrounds like mine, where you know there was uh, very little resources, but even you know people who whose parents are teachers or mm. social workers or. Yeah. Uh, middle line managers yeah. the the expense of of coming to to do a mm. law degree the expense of of of, of qualifying mm. is so much that you know it is again becoming a, a a real problem as to how we ensure that the law really is open mm. uh to everybody mm. and um that's something i think we we really have to have to address and, and work out how we can make that mm. a reality again one of the yeah. problems you know, when I started, I literally was able to earn a living. Uh, and uh, there was an expansion of legal aid. There were yeah. case, there were cases for young young lawyers to do. Mm. I mean, now, you know, where, is, where are the resources? They're not, they're not there. And, and yet the people are still clamouring to come into the profession, uh, which, is, which is fantastic. Yeah, and people are still clamouring for peaceful resolution of their disputes. And if, we, uh, if we're not able to help people... Yeah to resolve their disputes through the, 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 the impartial and neutral mechanism of the law, which is one of the basic functions of the state, mm. then that's uh, a recipe for breakdown of mm. uh, structures of our society. It, it, people, people understand about the National Health Service. They understand about the need for schools. Mm. So many people don't know about the law until suddenly it hits them yeah and by that time maybe it's a it, it's a bit too late because it's hit them already <laughs> well it's starting to sound like uh omnia strategy required much closer to home than kuwait <laughs> uh so maybe maybe there's a maybe there's a role for you as well there but uh, for the moment we're gonna have to let you go and do some more work and, uh, and, and and undoubtedly lots more to come from you but for the moment thank you so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure oh it, it's my pleasure too i mean as i said at the beginning i love the law i I think that it's an amazing way to affect change and um, I'm as enthusiastic about it 40 years on as I was when I started. The Hearing. As ever, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us again and why not give us a rating or subscribe? That way you'll get an alert every time we release a new episode. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.